Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Good morning. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here. And you know something you just said, Chase. It just made me think. Like, there's there's so many people in here who are just coming from different spots today. Some of you guys had a great week, and some of you had a terrible week. We were we were praying down here before the service started with with our team, and, and somebody just said it's been a really hard week, and just shared from his heart that that things didn't seem to be going smoothly. And I'd be a fool to think that that isn't something that people in here can relate to. We're just coming in from different spots and wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, I just want you to know that I'm really glad that you came here this morning to meet with God. And Chase, a second ago, just gave this invitation to, to raise your hands and, and some of you are comfortable with that and some of you are not. And that's actually not what I wanna talk about. But I wanna talk for just a minute and a half about the theology of raising your hands. See, to me, there's three reasons why I would raise my hands. The first reason would be is I feel victorious, like I won the game, like the Buckeyes scored and I put my hands up because we won the game. And so it's just this physical response to feeling like a winner. And if you know the story of the Bible, you know that you don't have to perform for God. God has already put in the ultimate performance for you. And so it is theologically appropriate to just raise your hand and say, I win. And then the second reason why I might want to raise my hands is if I'm surrendering. If I've been caught. If I have, if I just give up. And, and, and maybe there's some people in the room that just kind of feel this feeling of, man, you've been trying to just hold it all together and control everything. And, and there's this theologically appropriate response to just put your hands in the air and go, I don't, I don't want to try to control anymore. I can't. And then the third one, I've got three little kids. And the third reason why I think it's appropriate to raise your hands is because you need your dad. You need your mom. You need some help. My kids, when they hurt themselves, they run to me like this. And so it's appropriate for us to come in here and say, I need some help, Dad. I need someone to care for me. I'm hurting. And so I guess if, if you ever make that invitation or if you see other people doing that, you might think to yourself, maybe they feel victorious. Maybe they're surrendering or maybe they just need some help. I, I love that you gave that invitation. And I hope that that you'll think about that if, if ever invited to raise your hands when we sing. Again, let me pray for you and then I'm gonna get into, the, into today's message. God, we come before you today. I know I talk to people in the hallway who feel victorious today and for that I celebrate. I know some people in the room who just need to give it up and surrender and, and God, we ask that you would do that in us today. And then I also know some people who are putting their hands up this morning because they just need some help. They need somebody to take care of them, to tell them that they love them, to tell them that they're proud of them. They need you wherever we're at, wherever my friends here are at, God. I pray that you would meet us in a special way. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said... 
Amen. Y'all can have a seat where you're at. Well, my name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here at Three Creeks. And before I got to be the pastor here at Three Creeks, I was a summer camp director for kids. And so on a very special and personal level, that jellyfish victory was wonderful for me to witness. It made me feel like I was home again, cheering on the kids. Uh, When you speak to kids at summer camp, you've always got to try to think of Uh, something catchy, something visual, something memorable that's going to really make your message stick so that they won't forget it. And there's there's a healthy and maybe unhealthy competition between camp directors to see who can go bigger and better and more memorable than the last time or than the other guy or gal who shared a message. And and this was true of me one time. I was given the task at Beulah Beach Camp up on Lake Erie. Uh, My task was to talk about the power of words, about, uh, you know, how much weight they carry. And I thought, all right, how am I going to do this? And, and then I, w- I was picturing the scene, the, the service always starts where the kids rush in and they dance like crazy and there's no air conditioning and so they're all thirsty. And I thought, I got the perfect illustration. And so I got two uh, tables like this up on the stage, and I put a pitcher of water on this one, and a pitcher of water on this one, and a little cup next to each one of them. And I said, guys, uh, when you say sweet things, then that's just like this sugar right here. And I took a big old cup of sugar, and I, I poured it into the water. And I said, when you say things that add flavor and fun and, and give life, that's like this Kool-Aid packet. And so I rip open the top and I put the Kool-Aid packet in there. It's probably toxic, but at the time I think it was safe. And then I said, when you say things that are refreshing and encouraging, that's like this big scoop of ice. And I grab this big scoop of ice and I put it in there and I grab this wooden spoon and I'm stirring it and I'm going, does anybody want some? And all the kids are like rushing the stage trying to get like one little drop of red Kool-Aid. They're so thirsty. But uh, in leading up to giving this message, I I couldn't think of what I was going to do on this side. I wanted to talk about words that tear down, that discourage, things that you shouldn't say, unwholesome things, if you will. And it's about an hour. It shows you how last-minute camp can be at times. It was about an hour before I was supposed to give this message. I'm like, I like this part, but I don't know what I'm going to do with this side. And I thought, oh, brilliant idea. The camp is right next to a llama farm. And so I took a white bucket over there and I knocked on the door and I said, can I have a bucket of llama poop? And they said, okay, weird camp guys, sure, have at it. And so I went and filled up my bucket full of llama poop and I brought it back and I said, does anybody ever say anything stinky? You know, and I put some llama poop in the water and then does anybody say anything, you know, unwholesome or whatever? I don't even know what I was talking about. And I, putting them in there, putting it in there, and I'm stirring it up. Does anybody want some? There's a couple seventh grade boys saying, me. And, uh, and I was like, I was trying to illustrate, you know, the power of words, that you want to be around this. You don't want to be around that. Well, fast forward six weeks or so, camp ended. I, I actually moved to Colorado that fall. My youth pastor, my, my friend was a youth pastor. He said, Joel, I'd really like you to come talk to the youth group. I said, well, what's, what would you like me to talk about? I'd be delighted. He said, I want you to talk about the power of words. And I thought, bro, I'm your guy. I got the perfect illustration. 
oh man, this is in the bag, so I don't have to prepare for this one. So of course, I get my pitchers, get my water, get my sugar, get my ice, get my Kool-Aid, and I'm thinking, I don't know where a llama farm is out here. <laughs> and so I went to Dick's Sporting Goods, and I bought something called a buck bomb, which is essentially an aerosol can of deer urine, which it's used for hunting. That's neither here nor there, but you can go look at it on the shelf if you want to. And I thought, this is going to hit so memorable. You know, this is going to be great. So I take it in there. Kool-Aid thing works great. Ice, Kool-Aid, sugar. Anybody want some? Me. And then I go over here and I go, all right, does anybody ever say anything unwholesome? And I take the buck bomb and I just go, and I spray it into the water. What I didn't know was that the buck bomb is designed for you to suppress the button and then it, you just leave it in the woods and the whole thing is supposed to leak out. And you actually cannot unsuppress the button. And so I'm like, is anybody saying any cuss words? It's like, it's like, I'm shoving it into the water, it's bubbling up, you know? And this is a small room, like 50 or 60 kids, and they're starting to put their head, you know, their head. And so I'm looking at Mason, my youth, my friend, and I'm like, bro, I don't know what to do here. I ran outside. I just threw it. I walked back in, and youth group had been dismissed. You know, it was like, we can't stay in here. All that to say, I feel like in the memorable category, I nailed it. And if you're looking for a camp speaker, I'm your guy, all right? I'm a little bit older, a little bit wiser. I have no poop. I have no buck bombs. But my task today remains the same, and it's to talk about the weight of words. It's to talk about the power of words. In the Bible, in many, many passages, it, it tries to put an exclamation point on the fact that our words carry weight. And in your lives, I, I can't imagine that you disagree. Because the words that are spoken to us, or over us, or about us, or at us, have had a significant impact on us. Words, words can, can build and they can destroy. They can bring life, they can bring death, they can encourage, they can discourage, they can inspire, they can wound. Words carry a lot more weight than we can imagine. We're in the middle of this series in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through it for the last few months. If you're just tuning in, Ephesians was a letter written by a first century Christian missionary named Paul. He wrote a letter to some of his friends at a church in a city called Ephesus. And he had heard the report as to how they were doing. And so he wrote them this letter and we have it in our Bibles as the book of Ephesians. And if you remember, in case you don't, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you, the first three chapters, Paul lays a foundation, and he says, we were all spiritually dead, floating, face down, bloating, and God, in his great mercy and love for us, sends Jesus to bring us to spiritual life. This is the foundation of spiritual maturity. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul moves on from foundation and gives application. In other words, he gives us ways in which if you're spiritually alive, these things sh should be true of your life. And so he lays out these commands, these rules of how a Christian ought to live. And today I want to show you what Paul writes to the Ephesians about the words that they choose 
to use. And keep in mind, this is written to Christians. This is written to Jesus' followers. And I know that in this room, there are those who are following Jesus, and there are those who are not. There are those who are checking this out. And if you're not a Christian, if you're just checking this out, I I just want to be honest, this is optional for you. I do think that it would benefit every relationship that you have in your life, but to be fair, it is optional. But if you're a Christian, these are not suggestions. These are not to be considered. This isn't something you're allowed to weigh, should I, shouldn't I? These are commands. These are ways in which the Christian ought to walk. These are the words a Christian ought to choose. I want to show you today four verses where Paul talks about our words. But before I show you those, I want to show you where Paul roots all of these commands. Because if we're not careful, we can come out of here feeling like I just gave you a list of rules to follow. But that's not what this is. It isn't what it is. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which is, which is a two-verse section, right in the middle of all these verses about their words, this is what he writes. He roots all of the commands in this. He says, Christians, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. First, he gives them their identity. You're a Christian. You're a dearly loved child. And walk in the way of love. Paul roots the whole thing. Walk in the way of love. What does that mean? That means that we live all of our lives in an others-oriented way where we think about the benefit of others before the benefit of ourselves, especially with the words that we choose to use. In everything we do, we think of others before ourselves. That is the way of love. You ask, well, what exactly does that look like? Well, Paul tells us. He goes, walk in the way of love just as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, the way of love has been modeled It has been defined for us. He gave himself up for us. Jesus Christ gave his breath and life away to take our sins away. You see, the way of love, the way that Jesus lived his life was an an others-oriented way. He did it all for the benefit of other people. Jesus, one of my favorite verses, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve to think of others first. And so the way of love, once again, if you're a Christian, this isn't optional. This is what following Jesus looks like. And we all get to choose whether or not we want to follow Jesus, but we don't get to choose what that sounds like. Let me say that again. We all get to choose whether or not we are going to follow Jesus, but we do not get to choose what that sounds like. It has been prescribed for us in the Bible. So Paul gives the Ephesians four different verses about what a Christian sounds like when they are walking in the way of love. They're sprinkled through chapters four and five. I'll just take them one at a time and do my best to try to explain how we can live this out. Here's Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, Christians, each of you must put off falsehood And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, especially if you just pick out a verse, you ought to ask, what's it there for? Thank you. 
down here in the front. In other words, what is this a response to what was written right before this? And if you remember in, in verses 21, 22, 23, 24, Paul paints this picture of an old man in old clothes and a new man in new clothes. He's giving this picture of what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Remember I talked about how we're born kind of in prison wearing an orange jumpsuit with a number on it. But Jesus Christ walks in there and punches the demon guard in the throat and unlocks the door and then ushers us out. And he says, you can take off the prison clothes. And so what Paul's saying here is, therefore, this, this would be the evidence that that actually happened. So once again, if you're a Christian, this is what it sounds like. You must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Christians don't lie. They don't lie to their spouses. They don't lie to their kids. They don't lie to the government. They don't lie to the BMV. They just don't lie. They speak truthfully. And let me just share a personal example, real time, of, of a way that I'm like, dang it, I didn't want to read this verse this week. It can be expensive to tell the truth. It can be costly to put off falsehood. I, I currently have a crack in the windshield of my 2013 Honda Odyssey. And if you want to talk minivans, I'd be happy to do so in the hallway after church. Big Honda Odyssey guy. That crack occurred in October. And at the time, I didn't have the window crack insurance, but you better believe that as soon as I saw that crack, I went and signed up for it, $5 a month. And then I thought, oh man, they got me. They told me I've got to wait six months before I file a claim for my cracked windshield. Well, it's been six months, and right now, I have a decision to make. Crack's still there. I know that when I go on there to file this claim, it's going to say, when did the crack occur? And I have a decision to make. I can lie, or I can speak truthfully. I can put off falsehood. I can do the right thing, the thing that I know is true. Dang it, Right? But that's what, a that's what a Christian does. What a, what a Christian sounds like is a Christian tells the truth. It can be expensive. It can be awkward. It can be inconvenient. It can be costly. But Christians tell the truth. They put off falsehood and they speak truthfully as best as they can. They say and do the right thing. Christians tell the truth. Here's the next one. You can follow up on that with me if you want. I'll be about $450 poorer, but I'll make it. Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, what, what Paul does, when, when you read this verse, I want you to imagine that there's a gate in front of your mouth. And what Paul says is that there are words that we choose to open up the gate and let them out, and there are words with which we need to kind of do everything we can to hold the gate shut and do not let them out. And Paul here, he says that you are the guardians of this gate. You are the one that hits the button as to whether or not it opens or closes and lets it out or not. And then Paul goes on to describe things that we should hold the line, hold the gate, lock the door, 
don't let it out. And then he also talks about things that we should open the gate and let it flow. So first, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't let it out. The word unwholesome there, in the Greek, it means stinky, distasteful, offensive. It's the, used, it's the word used to describe rotting fish. Don't let it out. And so when frustration and anxiety and tension builds inside of you, when your spouse lets you down, when they don't meet your expectations, when you get a nasty email at work, when you buy a bubble wand for your kids and within 10 seconds they pour it out. In those moments, friends, you're supposed to imagine this gate. You are the guardian of the gate. Don't let anything that is unwholesome, stinky, offensive, tearing down, don't let it out. It will, th- th- these words will try to storm the gate and your job is to hold it tight. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And then Paul writes what we should let out. What do we push the button for? What do we open it up for? But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If it's helpful, if it builds, if it benefits, let it flow. You've probably heard the expression, you know, It's possible to have too much of a good thing. And perhaps that's true with some things, but it is not true with words of encouragement. It is not true with words that build and words that help, words that benefit. I've never counseled someone who said, I've I've just been encouraged too much. No one can trace their wounds back to having too much encouragement as a kid. In my opinion, we are far too selective and stingy with the words of encouragement that we share, despite the fact that they are completely free to give away. I I got a text this week from somebody sitting in this room, and he was just thanking me for my friendship and impact that I've had on his life over the last couple years, and it completely changed my day. Uh, it, It just encouraged me so, it was wind in my sails. It was so encouraging to hear that I'm having an impact. I'm making a difference. I've been a good friend. It was so life-giving for me. And I just, I sent a text back and I said, listen, you could have just thought this, but the fact that you took 30 seconds to write it and send it changed my day. And it was completely free to give away. That is what a Christian sounds like. You see, listen, this is important for us to understand. Encouraging words literally have the potential to impact the trajectory of someone's life. And at the same time, words left unsaid have the potential to impact the trajectory of someone's life. Words left unsaid. I'd like to just speak to the dads in the room just for a second, or or the men that want to be dads one day. Here's a couple lines that I think we should commit to memory. I love you. I am so proud of you. I believe in you. We should be saying this to our children so often that they roll their eyes, that they say, Dad, we know. We get it. If we ever say to our kids, hey, guess what? We, they should 
anticipate, they're going to say, Dad, we know you love us. We know you're proud of us. We know you believe in us. And, and if that is not something that was ever said to you, or if that is uncomfortable for you to wrap your mind around, that's not something that comes easily to you, let me just remind you, it isn't about us. It isn't about us. Walk in the way of love. Live in an others-oriented way. Grab your son or your daughter in the face and look them in the eyeballs and say, I love you. I'm so proud of you. Because words left unsaid have the potential to impact the trajectory of your children's lives. That is what a Christian dad sounds like. It's what a Christian mom sounds like. It's what a Christian friend sounds like. If it's helpful, if it builds, if it encourages, if you can speak like, open up the gate and let it flow. They're free to give away. That, that last line there, that it may benefit those who listen. One, one brief comment about that. Obviously, there are times that it can be helpful to say a negative thing, to offer some criticism, some feedback, some whatever you want to call it. There, there's times for that. If it isn't the exception, then those kinds of things either bounce or wound. Studies show that you need five to nine positive, encouraging things told to you to counterbalance one negative thing that's shared with you. And in family relationships or in marriage, I think it's about triple. I mean, it, it just kind of goes up the closer you know a person. And, and there are times, friends, listen, I, I'm preaching to myself. You may as well put a mirror right here and just, I should just be saying this to myself. Is there space for something that can be, you know, interpreted as negative? Yes, sometimes that can be helpful. But, but listen, if the reasoning or if, the, if underneath it is this sense of like, well, I was just being honest. I just had to get it off my chest. All of a sudden, it's all about us again. I, I have found if I really evaluate the, the critique that I have of my wife or my children or my friends or the people that I work with, so often it is really more about me needing to say something that I needed to say rather than them really needing to hear what they needed to hear. It really all of a sudden comes back to me again. And so this filter this filter through which we evaluate these things that we share, if they're going to be interpreted as negative, the filter has to be, is this truly at the heart for the benefit of others? And have I already given, have I already just overdosed on encouragement? Have I already paved the way, walking in the way of love that I have ground to stand on on this? Oftentimes, that probably is going to be a moment where you're invited into it rather than you kicking the door down into it. I'm preaching to myself but you know that it's true. So even in the negative feedback or criticism you give to the people that you love, do it from a place where you're walking in the way of love, not because you just got to get something off your chest or just being honest. There, there's a big, people think honesty is just saying everything that's true. It's not. Honesty is making sure that what you're saying is true. It's not saying everything that is true. If you say everything that is true, you don't have any friends. You'd be a jerk. Honesty is making sure what you say is true. And I'm, I should write that down a note to myself just to keep that on the front of my mind here. All right, number three, Ephesians 5, verse 4. 
Here's the third one. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. One of the funniest things I get to experience as a pastor is watching people react after the first time that they cuss around me. Uh, they, usually, they usually don't let them rip out of the gate. You know what I mean? They, uh, they might dip their toe in with like a what the hell or something like that, just see how I react. But I'll be, I'll be golfing with people. They'll hit a terrible shot. They'll look at their club and be like, you piece of stuff. <laughs> and they think they're so smooth, you know? And they think I didn't notice. It's pretty funny to, to experience from, my, from the seat that I sit in. It kills me every time. And then people start kind of just tiptoeing in, like, is Joel going to be okay with this? Some people just let it rip. Hope I don't bring it up and make him feel awkward. Let me, just, let me just tell you something honestly. Pull back the curtain here, share transparently. I'm pretty good at not cussing in front of you. I'm pretty good at not cussing in front of my wife, in front of my kids, in front of anybody, really. I've trained myself in that way. But if my garage had a microphone in it, if my golf bag had a microphone on it, if my car had a microphone in it, and some of those audio tracks were played back to you, I would just be ashamed of myself. I would be so embarrassed about some of the words that I choose to use. I, I don't have an ax to grind. I'm not trying to impose rules on you. But here's what I'm saying about me. There's no way I can read this verse and be okay with that part of my vocabulary. They are irreconcilable. It says no obscenity out of your mouths. I, I want to brag about somebody in the room. Uh, his name's Tyler Gorham. He's one of our elders. He's sitting down here. A couple years ago, we jumped into the Christian life together. I could see that you wanted to grow up and be an old, wise, godly man. And I, did, and I do too. That's what I want to grow up into. And I could just tell at that point in our lives that we were like, you want to do this together? And we started to share more about our sin and our struggles and just who we are as people. And I can remember a time, my, my memory's a little faint on it, but I do remember a time just asking you, hey, why do you cuss? This is four years ago, I think. Why do you cuss? And, and I honestly don't remember your response at the time, but I do remember six months ago, nine months ago or so, thinking, I haven't heard you cuss in years. And then I thought, well, maybe he trained himself not to do it around me. And so I just asked you, I said, is that, did you move on that? Did you change on that? And your response showed so much spiritual maturity. This is what Tyler said. He said, I used to cuss. It was a way to relate. I wanted to be one of the boys, and I didn't want to put off any holier-than-thou vibes. But the more I dug into the Bible, the more I realized that God wanted me to change to tame my tongue. In Colossians, in Proverbs, in James, we're told to control our tongues, and it can be a way for a Christian to stand out rather than what I was trying to do, which was fit in. In an effort to be like Jesus and to walk in the way of love and to consider others and to be above reproach, you just said, I don't need it. And, you, and from time to time, you might hear Tyler say abominable things like golly sakes or something like that. <laughs> That's what a Christian sounds like. No, I'm just kidding. 
Because in this life, listen guys, in this life, especially in this Christian life, we're tempted to read this with the attitude of what can I do? What am I now allowed to do? What do I not get to do? What, what can I do? But, but the question that a spiritually mature or mature person asks is not what can I do, but what should I do? What should I do? So, so if you're really asking the question like, can I cuss? Sure. There's a lot of freedom in Christ. If you stub your toe, let one rip, forgiven. God doesn't love you any less. But, but there's this mark of spiritual maturity where we read this and go, what should I do? I'm going to try to walk in that. I'm not, trying to, I'm not going to dig in my heels and say, no, this is who I am. This is how I was raised, how we talk. You read this and go, is my life, am I walking in the way of love? The other two things it says that there shouldn't be any of in us is this foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place. I told a, I told a story a few weeks ago to a, guy, to a group of guys at a table. We're going to call the story Borderline, all right? It was, uh, I don't tell the story in front of everybody. So for that, you know, it's kind of borderline. I think somebody might interpret it as crass. I didn't think it was that bad. Got a few laughs and whatever, you know, it's fine. And Tyler Gorham, my fellow journeyman on this journey to be like Jesus, in love, confronted me about that. And he said, hey, I think that falls into the category of coarse joking. And there's a part of me, it's like, dude, <laughs> really? You know, didn't you see everybody rolling? Like, and... <laughs> And I just want to defend it. And I want to say, dude, seriously? And at the end of the day, I just got to ask myself, why am I trying to defend that? Why am I trying to flirt with the line? Why am I trying to tell a story or say anything that would be interpreted by anybody as coarse joking? Am I really going to be okay if I shelve that story forever and don't tell it again? I think I'll survive. I think I'll survive. And in love, you did that for me, and I will be better and more godly because of it. Yes, I did open up this sermon with a story about llama poop, and if that crossed the line for somebody, I can shelve that one too. Let me just point you back to number, the, 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 the last sentence of that second point was only just share what is helpful, building others up, that it'll benefit those who listen. That's what Tyler did with me. And here's why that worked so well. It wasn't because of me and my incredible humility. Trust me, that, that's not why it worked. It worked because, friends, listen, when you're sharing things with people that you love, intent matters as much as content. It is incredibly difficult to receive any kind of correction or feedback from somebody if you don't trust their intentions. And Tyler, I trust your intentions because you want to be like Jesus and you have move things out of your life to be more Christ-like. And so for that reason, I go, I think this guy has my interests in mind. And so for that reason, I'm able to receive it. Here's the last one, verse four. This is a list of six or seven things. There's actually only one that talk about our words, but you're savvy enough, you'll be able to pick it out. Ephesians 4, 31. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, Brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Get rid of all slander. The Greek word for that is the word blasphemia. 
And it means to tear someone's down or to make damaging statements about someone's name. And Paul says, get rid of it. And that might not seem like that big of a deal to you. You might be like, I can think of some worse sins than blasphemia. But consider this. Blasphemia is included in some lists of sins in the New Testament that are terrible. It's, it's included in lists with adultery, with arrogance, with folly, with rage, with evil. Blasphemia is what Satan does over and over and over in the book of Revelation. He blasphemies against others. He blasphemies against us. He blasphemies against Jesus and against God. And so when we tear other people down, when we speak damaging about their names behind their backs, we are actually acting more like Satan than we are like Jesus. And that's a pretty extreme statement for me to say, but it is true. Blasphemia is what Satan does, not what a Christian does. Paul says, get rid of all blasphemia all language that tears down so we don't talk about our spouse in a disparaging way or our children in a disparaging way or celebrities or athletes in a disparaging way or our bosses in a disparaging way. It's not what a Christian sounds like. It's not what a Christian sounds like. A Christian prays and asks God to give them the strength to keep the gate shut when unwholesome talk storms the gates. That was a lot. This is a lot. I can't imagine that you remember everything that I said, but take a minute. Let me ask you two questions. The first question is, where do you have work to do? Where do you have work to do? In what area, in which one of these verses, which one stuck out as, yeah, I got work to do. If you need help finding an area to work on, somebody who loves you would be glad to point it out, I'm sure. Here's the second question. Who hopes that you will get to work soon? Whose life would benefit if you got to work soon? Who hopes that this isn't just one Another message that's in one ear and out the other. Whose life would be benefited and built up if you took something you heard today and got to work on it? Remember, friends, I'm not inducing a, a, a new set of rules for you to follow. I'm trying to describe how to walk in the way of love, how to live in an others-oriented way. And with the words that we choose to use, we have the ability to do that, to bring life and encouragement to other people. With the words that we use, they carry so much weight. And so, you know, if, if you disagree with me on this, I, I, it's fine. Don't wrestle with me. Wrestle with this. Wrestle with it. And say, God, is there anything in me that you want to change? Because when you go from the old man to the new man, from the spiritually dead to the spiritually alive, things change. It's not about rules. It's about evidence that a transformation has happened in you. Are we singing a song? We're singing a song. We're going to sing a song. It's just a, a shorter version of the song we sang earlier. You know what? Would you guys stand where you're at? We're going to sing that bridge. We're going to sing about Jesus, that we put our faith in him and that he's faithful to us. And as we sing this song, I, I ask you to consider those two questions again. 
Where do you have work to do? And who wants you to get to work soon? Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.